not help but sing along. Amen. That's a great song. We praise the Lord for the truth of being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Please take your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10 this morning. Matthew chapter 10. We're continuing our study going through Matthew's gospel of looking at the apostles of Jesus, the disciples that Jesus called to himself and how he called them to himself and then he sent them forth not only as he drew them to himself as disciples, as he sent them forth as apostles. It's been a wonderful study and journey of looking at these men one by one and a little bit of what we call a, a character sketch, a biographical moment where we are re-familiarizing ourselves with who these men, these choice servants were and who they are. Again, looking at the marvelous grace of God in each one of their lives. But this morning, we come to the saddest one of all, we come to the apostle Judas. Judas. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4, you will find, we will not read the whole list as we have been doing. We will simply narrow our focus this morning to verse 4 of chapter 10. Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So we focus our attention this morning, coming finally to this name of Judas, we cannot help but maybe enter into Matthew's mind as he records this gospel. Uh, experts believe that Matthew recorded the gospel of Matthew maybe about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And as he goes to these names one by one, we cannot help but imagine that as he writes down Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew's mind is flooded with memories as he recounts the works of God, the wonderful works of God, God's marvelous grace and the redeeming of these men, the many experiences that they had with Christ and his teaching and his preaching and his healing, the miracles that they observed. And yet when he comes to the name of Judas, the distaste that Matthew no doubt felt in his inner person, Notice, and, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Christ. Every mention or reference of Judas in the scriptures always makes note to define him by what he did. This Judas, as opposed to all the other Judases, this is the one who sold out the Lord of glory. This is the one who betrayed Christ. No doubt there was immense sadness in Matthew's heart and mind as he recounted this drama, this actual account of the Lord's betrayal. And where all the other apostles stand as an encouragement and an example to us of God's work of grace, signposts to us as pointing us to the work of Christ in their lives, we look at Judas, and I have to be honest with you, I've had to stir up my heart this week. I've not been necessarily motivated this week and excited about preaching about Judas. I'm just being honest with you. But friends, as we look at the word of God this morning, this is a warning to us. Judas is a signpost to us, opposite of the signposts of the other apostles who say, look to Christ and live. Don't look to us for salvation, but look to the Lord of glory who called us to himself, who chose us, who gave us a calling, who gave us a commission, who could use broken sinners, redeemed sinners just like us, and use us for the work of the ministry. The apostles tell us if Jesus can use us, he can use you. He can use anyone. But when we come to Judas, we have to ask this question. What does Judas 
What does he teach us? He stands as a divine warning for us here this morning as those who may be religious but lost. Judas stands as an example for us this morning as those who may be present but not converted. They're in the right place. They're they're doing the right thing. The problem is they just don't know God. All over the world this morning as God's people have gathered for worship, there have been Judases or false professing followers, false disciples who are going through the motions. The problem is they're just not saved. It's a form and a function, but there's no heart reality of the new birth within them. So we consider this question, what does Judas teach us this morning? He is a rebuke to the proud. Judas is a rebuke to those who are hard of heart. Week after week, they're in a class, they're in a Bible study, they're in the corporate worship of God's people, and they hear the word of God preached. And instead of their hearts growing more compliant and soft to the truth of Scripture, of saying, oh Lord, that's me, that's my sin, Father, show me my sin. Oh, my goodness, I have sinned against you. Or, Lord, help me to increase in faith. Lord, help me to grow in the things of truth and things of the Lord. These are those who hear the word and are hardened. These are those who sit under the preaching and teaching of Scripture, and yet they are not changed. They are informed. There is a head knowledge, but there is not a heart knowledge. They have an awareness of truth. They can speak of the truth, but yet that truth has not changed them. And friends, this is one of the greatest mysteries in the Scriptures of how people can engage with the truth of the gospel and engage with the truth of Christ and yet not be changed by it. These are those who are also, as we see in the life of Judas, regularly putting out feelers to see who, is, who else is, is like me. Who else thinks this is Silly, or whatever it is that scorners think. Who else thinks this might be a little ridiculous? Or who else thinks that Jesus is a little absurd here? Or who else thinks that the the requirements of Christ don't actually mean what they say they mean? And, And let's just minimize the truth of Scripture. These are those, as we consider, what does Judas have to teach us? These are those who make a profession of faith in Christ, and yet they've never been broken, are not broken, have no cognizance, or awareness of their sin and their rebellion against God. What does Judas have to teach us? These are those who never repent. These are those who never say, I'm sorry. These are those who never own their sin. These are those who have nothing to repent of. And friends, if we find ourselves in that description this morning, I'm not saying you're lost, but may the Holy Spirit, if that is a comprehensive, true statement of me and of you this morning, may the Holy Spirit of God Open our hearts and show us our sin and break down our pride and take the hammer of the gospel and shatter us this morning. Bottom line, what does Judas have to teach us? He he teaches us that even among the inner 12, even among the 12 disciples, there are those that pretend. There are those who have a form, as Jude describes it in our study of Jude this evening we'll be seeing. There are those who have a form of godliness, but they deny its transforming power. They are, they are aware of it. They can speak in theological terms. They are well-versed. Judas heard every message of Christ. Get that, folks. Judas witnessed the miracles of Christ and was unchanged. 
Many times we simply think as we pray for those that are lost that we love. We simply say and maybe dream, Lord, if, if maybe they could just see you and, and hear you, if they could just have an experience that is otherworldly or, or something like that, then truly they would be changed. Well, Judas did. Judas saw Christ. Judas touched Christ. Judas heard Christ, and yet Judas was unchanged. Like the other apostles, Judas spent two to three years in the public ministry with Jesus. He heard every sermon. He heard every parable. And he also saw Jesus in every unimaginable scene, situation. One thing that struck me was the power of influence. And that's what I was trying to touch on just a moment ago. Sometimes we think, man, if something powerful could just happen Maybe they could just see as we think about those that we know are lost, we love, or we're praying for. But that's the thing, is Judas did. Judas saw Jesus not just in the, the public moments of ministry. Judas saw Jesus in the most private, quiet, behind-the-scenes moments of ministry. Judas saw Jesus stretched to the physical limits of exhaustion. And yet while the other disciples went in their normal fleshly pattern to go sleep and to rest... Jesus would go at the limits of his physical experience and go spend time with the Father. You want to talk about the power of example, the power of influence, and yet none of it had an effect upon Judas. Judas had ample opportunity to see Christ in every imaginable angle and scene, and yet he was not changed. And interestingly enough, as we look at a few passages of Scripture that teach us some things about Judas this morning, something began to happen in Judas's heart that was, that was counter, uh, counterclockwise, counterculture, if you will, to the other disciples spiritually. As we've been looking at these other disciples, they had failures. They had awful moments with the Lord they had moments that were embarrassing, moments that were shameful. But here is the difference between Peter and Judas, say, for example. Here is the difference between James and Judas and John and Judas in their worst moments. You know, if you remember, we were talking about with some of those apostles, it was so interesting that their best moments and their worst moments were all in the same moment. And you say, how boneheaded can they be? How, how can they miss it? But where those apostles learned and received God's grace and grew in grace and receiving the grace of God. And as they repented of their sins and owned their sin, they grew softer and softer and obedient, more and more obedient, and grew in faith to Jesus and his claims and the reality of just what kind of Messiah he truly was. They understand that, that Jesus, understood that Jesus was not a physical Messiah in the sense of establishing an earthly kingdom in the moment. Jesus was not here to bring justice to the Jews now. Jesus was not the king coming to establish a castle and a reign at that moment. They begin to see. They begin to understand. Their hearts were open to understand that Jesus was the Messiah that was long prophesied about. That this was a spiritual kingdom beginning in the here and now. And that would fully be culminated in the future. They begin to grow softer more in love with Christ, yielding to his claims, yielding to his demands, and yet Judas, in contrast to them, grew harder and harder, 
unbelief begin to grow in his heart as opposed to the softness and the melting that grew in the other disciples' hearts. Judas stands as a living example to us of the depravity of the human heart as we think about the ultimate example of that awful word, betrayal. Betrayal. Some of you in this room this morning have experienced some manner of betrayal from friends, from a spouse, from a boss, from a parent. It's an awful, awful word as we consider thinking we know someone thinking we can rest in someone. There's a trust factor there, and then we are completely betrayed. But when you look up betrayal in the dictionary, it is Judas's picture that we find there. He is the definitive example of betrayal in the Word of God, that he would sell out the perfect, sinless Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, for what, we would say, as we saw in the Scripture readings, for simply a handful of, of coins. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 reminds us truly, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Friends, as we look at a couple of examples here this morning, I want to remind us we don't know our own hearts. We must constantly examine our own hearts and the things of the Lord. Guard our hearts, the, the, the Solomon tells us, for out of it flow the issues of life. Number one, the first point we'll look at this morning is, is Judas's background. Just as we've done with the other apostles, we want to just set him up and introduce him. And here's what's interesting is that we don't know much about Judas's background. Literally, the main thing that we know about Judas is he is the one who betrayed the Son of God. But as you begin to try to dig like we did the other apostles, you will find it's very difficult to find anything about his past. Any background type of information. He was an ordinary man, just like the other apostles. There was no special fame or achievement that seems to be attached to Judas that distinguishes him with some type of notoriety before he began to follow Christ. Like we find out about Matthew, who was a tax collector, Peter and Andrew and James, who all had a business in the fishing industry before they began to follow Christ. Very little is known about Judas. And I have a guesstimate. Again, it's, it's my guesstimate. I think he had something to do with money. If Judas was placed over the treasury, he obviously was skilled in some measure in his strength zone. It was understood that this disciple's strength zone was in the realm of finance. And we know this about Judas was that he was placed over the finances. So obviously, in some capacity, he was uh, some type of advisor, some, some type of position with a background in finance that we can assume. The work of the word in his heart as we think about the new birth is always an amazing thing. But in his heart, there was no change. Somewhere along the way, he began to hear the teachings of Christ, the example of Christ. And he began to constantly attend, constantly be present, even hearing that general call of Christ to follow him, which he did. Even to the point where we'll look at in just a moment where Jesus tells his disciples and Judas, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And even one of you is the son of perdition, as we will see. Judas is an example of those who hear the truth, as we've been pointing out, but yet in their heart, they are not changed. Friends, lest we miss this theme this morning, let me just remind you, 
as we rehearse the gospel, there are those who sang the songs we sang this morning. There are those who prayed to God this morning. There are those who lift high the name of Christ and they truly know him. And also in this room, this room, not some other room this morning, there are those who said the same prayers, sang the same songs, will hear the same sermon, and yet their hearts will not be soft and pliable. Their hearts will grow hard and stone. Even as I'm preaching this very message, your heart right now towards me is just the messenger of the Lord. It's not towards me personally. It's one of scorn. Your heart, literally at this very moment, is being hardened. And I want to speak a word to you right now at this moment. And it's to look to Christ. Repent of your sins and run to Christ. Confess your very sin of hard-heartedness and scorn towards the word of God. We have the privilege of running to Christ this morning, having an opportunity to respond to the message. You may be listening to me and you say, well, how do I know if I'm that person? Well, here's some signs. When you listen to the word of God, as we think about Judas and his pattern of experience, when he heard the word of God, he did not hear it for him. He never heard it for him. Maybe as you listen to the word of God here this morning, you think of it as this is for them. Or so-and-so should be hearing this message this morning. It is for them, but it's, it's not for me. But here's the problem. You always think that way. You don't ever apply the message of God's word to your heart. It's always meant for someone else. That is the spirit of Judas. The words of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, do not apply to you. You have arrived. You know all things. You are ever-knowing. You are the theological expert of your home, the church, your family. The problem is you just don't know Jesus, may the Lord soften our hearts this morning, lest you think I'm being too hard. Listen, Paul said of Demas, Demas was once one of us. Demas once preached with us. Demas once uh, witnessed miracles with us. Demas was once here with us, but now Demas is no longer of us. Friends, that could be any one of us here this morning. Our hope is based and hope is in Christ Jesus and nothing less, not in nothing else, but it's in him and him alone. We could be that Judas or that Demas. And my point is not to scare you, but my point is to provoke you, to, to awaken you, to examine your own hearts that the scripture calls us to do, to see whether we be in the faith. First Corinthians chapter four, verse seven, Paul says in a sarcastic way, he says, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise. You are, we are weak, but you are strong. And he's addressing a spirit that you could say is a spirit of Judas among those who hear the words of Christ, the teaching of Scripture, and it is a constant state of judgment or scorn. But here's the most sobering part growing hardened, and in Judas's life, even to the point of betraying the Son of God. The only thing we know of Judas relationally is in John chapter 6, verse 71. The text tells us that his father's name is Simon. And interestingly enough, we know that Judas's name means this, Jehovah leads. Jehovah leads. And ironically enough, Jehovah did not lead Judas in his life. It's a reminder to us that while sometimes we live up to our names, not always. And in Judas's account, Jehovah did not lead him in the sense of responding in a fruitful way towards the teaching and preaching of Christ. His heart was hardened. And he was a scornful individual. This is probably what it means as we think about in James chapter 1, verse 8, how James tells us a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Literally, a double-souled man 
is unstable in all his ways. And while others did not know Judas, as we see him as an obscure disciple who comes upon the scene, this probably worked to his advantage in hiding his true character from the other disciples. Here's the point. Jesus knew him. Jesus knew all about him. In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus told his disciples, he said, And Jesus answered them, he said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him as one of the twelve. Now here's what's interesting as you think about that pronouncement as Jesus looks at his disciples and says, One of you is a devil. Here's how you can know that you have a spirit of Judas, if you will, or if you're lost, is that you don't hear that, and you hear that, and there's no self-examination, right? So so the disciples hear that, and they're constantly thinking, is it I? Is is it me? Would I be the one to do such a thing? Would, Would I be the one to betray Christ? And yet Judas, we have no indication ever that there is a spirit of humility or a spirit of self-awareness or a spirit of self-examination, of examining his heart before the Lord, Judas is one who has arrived. Judas is proud. Judas is confident. Judas thinks he's smarter than God's word. Judas thinks he is wiser than Jesus in the teachings of Christ. As we'll see, Judas's heart becomes more and more scornful as he continues to be exposed to the truth of Scripture. And friends, that spirit of Judas or hard-heartedness or lostness or unbelief will always be revealed over the process of time. You will know a tree by its fruits. If we are a certain type of root, we will bear a certain type of fruit. We see that the only other thing that we can draw from his background is that his name, Judas Iscariot, literally means that he was from Curioth, literally the man from Curioth, Judas Iscariot. Now, as we look into this text and look into his background, one of the things we see, as I point out before, is literally every text that mentions him gives him the designation in Matthew 10, verse 4, he was the one who betrayed Christ. Luke 6, verse 16, Luke designates him as the traitor. Luke 22, verse 6, as the one who Satan entered into. John 6, verse 70, the devil. John 17, verse 12, the son of perdition, literally the son of hell. Friends, it's a reminder to us of how evil and wicked Judas was in our hearts, in his heart, excuse me. And as we examine our hearts, may we submit ourselves to God, as James exhorts, and resist Satan, and he will flee from us. Run to Christ this morning. Flee to Christ. Number one, Judas's background. Number two, we see Judas's hypocrisy. Judas's hypocrisy. A hypocrite is one who has a part in a play. A hypocrite is literally the one who play acts. A hypocrite is one who wears a mask. In the ancient times in Greece and Rome and play acting and the dramas that would take place in the public square, in the marketplaces, in the agora, or in the, in the um, outdoor amphitheaters, oftentimes the play actors would do the motions of a mime and an actor and simply swap out their masks for the different characters. They were not that character. The mask simply made it seem like they were that character. They were an actor. This was not a term of derision, but has become and became a term of derision. 
Peter was a pretender. He was a hypocrite. He was a play-acting, you could say, disciple. Judas was a pretender. He played the role of a disciple without the actual reality of the power of the Holy Spirit or presence of Christ in his life. And again, as we make application, there are many examples of this in the Word of God and in the Scriptures, even about Judas himself. And I want to look at maybe just two or three passages of Scripture that show us this. The first one I want you to turn to is John chapter 12, verse 2. If you'll turn in the Word of God, John chapter 12 and verse 2, which may be the single most illuminating passage of Scripture that shows us the heart of Judas in a way that we don't see in the other passages. Judas, you could say, was the first woke disciple. And I know that sounds attention-grabbing, but, but I mean it. I'll try to show you here in just a minute. John chapter 12, in verses 2 through 7, if, if you'll join me in the Scriptures there. We see that the context is that Jesus and his disciples are at Bethany. Then the six days, verse 1, it says, Then the six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who was, had been raised from the dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. At that moment, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, sees an opportunity to do something for her Lord. Mary is a true disciple. She's been changed by the message of Christ. She understands. Here's the thing. The key point of this passage is that Mary understands what Jesus is saying. Mary's heart, interestingly enough, as Jesus is surrounded by these men, these chosen vessels for the service of the ministry, but they're not getting it. They're missing it. And here, the Holy Spirit records for us, is a, a servant, a, a meek and quiet woman named Mary who gets it. She gets what Jesus is saying. She knows that his time is short on this earth. So she sees an opportunity. She thinks, if I don't show my worship of Christ now, I may not get this opportunity again. So much is here for us, by the way, is when the Lord leads you to do something, do it. <laughs> don't wait. And that's what Mary models for us here. Verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, this fragrance, an amazing, overwhelming, you could say, over the top anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now notice that. You ever been around someone who they've sprayed maybe too much perfume on that morning? It's like, whoa, you know, you're having trouble breathing. Literally, this act of Mary filled the home, filled the structure. It was hard to breathe. But one of his disciples, notice the attention given to us of Judas, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. Now notice all those qualifiers given to us. It's always that way with Judas. This is what he said. Verse 5, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared. Notice how the Holy Spirit gives us this insight into the background of his heart. Not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. Judas was not only the betrayer, Judas was a thief. Judas was regularly stealing from the general offering, you could say, of the disciples, that which was given to support the Lord by people like Mary and Martha and uh, Salome, 
There's different individuals in the life of Jesus' ministry and Lazarus who they opened up their homes to Christ. They gave them money to live on, if you will, as they did the work of the ministry. And that was entrusted to Judas. And Judas was regularly pilfering from the offerings. The Holy Spirit says Judas was very financially savvy. He was very aware of prices. Obviously, he knows all about the brand name of this ointment, this spikenard, this perfume. He knows what it's worth. And he has a disdain that such a thing would be used on Jesus. The Holy Spirit tells us that he had no care or concern for what his words said. He knew the right thing to say. He was woke. Listen. Why? He, he was vengeful, resentful of what was taking place for someone else. And then he cast the, the, the accusation and the judgment on it. This should be done for the poor. Here's the point. He missed the point. He forgot that Jesus is the Son of God. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't think Jesus was worthy of such an offering. And this is what he says. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. And she recognizes this is her moment to pour it out upon me. Verse 8, for the poor you will have with you always, but me you will not always have. Friends, there's so much here in just this cross-reference of Scripture. We do not have time to unpack, but here, here is the point that I want us to see. Judas did not care about Mary, Lazarus, Jesus, or the poor. Judas was consumed with selfishness. Judas was lost. Judas was not a believer. Judas's God was money. And ultimately, he would sell out Jesus for his God, the God that he ultimately worshipped. He ignored and did not believe in the coming death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is why he cannot hide the fruit of the root of his heart. That is why he responds with disdain towards this, act, this work, uh, excuse me, act of worship towards Christ. And friends... Just like Judas, we cannot hide our hearts if we are truly not of the Lord's. If we are wolves instead of sheep, if we are tares instead of wheat, it will come out in our hearts and lives. And my point to say that is not to scorn you to shame. My point is to say, look to that and recognize that. If the Holy Spirit reveals to you your lostness, run to Christ, repent of your sins, and trust and rest in Him and Him alone. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and the sovereign mercy and grace of God. It's through preaching like what I'm doing right here, mysteriously. Some would say, you're shaming people, Legrand. I'm not shaming you. I love you this morning. And God, in His sovereign purposes, uses preaching like this on Judas to show some people in a room like this this morning, you are like a Judas. And if you experience that awakening, look to Jesus. That's the, the bad news. Here's the good news, is you can be saved. If you'll see your need of it, if you'll become awakened to your need of it, don't grovel in the fact that, man, this, this looks like me. This looks like my profile. This looks like my heart. Here's the good news. Look to Jesus. It's why you're here this morning. There's no mistake of why you're here under this message with a pastor who's crazy enough to preach a message on Judas. <laughs> Listen, I thought we were coming to church to be encouraged this morning. Oh, we are friends as we look at the, both the good news and the bad news all in one. Many believe, as we look at this text in John chapter 12, that this was actually the decisive moment where Judas was scorned publicly by Christ. He was reprimanded by Christ. He had a, a slap on the hand verbally by the Lord, if you will. Many commentators and experts and pastors believe that this was the moment where Judas's heart was hardened beyond repair and he determined to do something about it. He determined 
to betray Christ. He did not know how, he did not know the way, he did not know the full orbedness of it, but he was frustrated with Jesus. He was frustrated that Jesus was not in alignment with his view of things, his politics, and his also God love of money. Judas wanted a kingdom here. Judas wanted a kingdom now. And Judas wanted a role in that kingdom. It's why he was a disciple of Jesus. He wanted to be an early adopter. He dreamed of prominence, wealth, power, significance, fame. And when he did not receive it, he was filled with scorn for the precious lamb of God. Again, this contrast is staggering. Here in this very moment, Jesus is being anointed. And at the same time, Jesus is being scorned. We've seen this theme, as the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the snow is the same sun that hardens the clay. And mysteriously enough, every time God's word is read, every time it's preached, two things are simultaneously happening. Some of you here this morning are growing in Christ. You're growing in grace. You're growing soft and compliant to the things of the Spirit. You have advanced in your spirituality. You, are not, you have not arrived, but you, by the grace of God, are not what you once were. And others of you are getting hardened and hardened and hardened, and you are unchanged. There's no difference in you today than there was 10 years ago. Two things are happening at the same time. It's staggering how the Word of God in one message can convert the lost and at the same time can harden those who reject it. As we look at this text and we see the hardening of Judas's heart here, in verses 2 through 8, we see that Judas had an inability to receive a rebuke. This is a moment where if this had happened to Peter, James, and John, but Jesus said, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. The poor you will have with you always, but me you do not always have. This is a great moment to repent. This is a great moment to repent and to run to Christ and believe. This was a great moment where if had this been Peter, James, Andrew, John, the others, they would have repented. They had these very moments of foot in mouth. And yet here we see the exact opposite happens in the life of Judas. Jesus tells Judas, leave her alone. And Judas says in his heart, I will kill you for that. How dare you scorn me in front of the others? Judas has a godlike complex and does not believe what Jesus says he is. Vengeful. And revengeful. It's a word for us, friends. Turn to just very quickly Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. If we make application to us as believers, the church of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. We see what true love looks like. You've got to understand that our world has a skewed understanding and definition of love. God is love, 1 John tells us. We love because he first loved us. Love doesn't begin with us or our understanding or our definition. Love is who God is. Whatever he does is loving. Whatever he does is driven by love. God is the standard of love. So with that as the backdrop, notice and hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews 12, 5. The author of Hebrews says this, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you. Now notice here, as sons. God loves you in the aspect of a relationship as a father and a son. Here, given quotation from the Old Testament, Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. 
Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And he goes on to give a fuller amplification of that. Friends, listen, if you truly love your son, if you truly love your daughter, you will correct them. You will not let them go out into the street. You will give them boundaries. You have rules and for, their, for their flourishing, for their freedom. And when they violate those standards within your household, it doesn't save them. Save them in the sense like the gospel saves them, but it protects them. You love them. And if you don't love them, you won't correct them. And here we see the Heavenly Father is the perfect Heavenly Father who corrects and loves and confronts. And He does this to His children. And those who are truly His children respond in repentance. That's why we said if you never repent, if you're never wrong, if you never have to say, I'm sorry, if you are too prideful to own something, or to own your sin with your spouse or your children. Men, we are to be the chief repenters modeling it in our houses. Our wives and our children should know what repentance looks like because their daddy modeled it for them. Just to give an example. When we experience that chastening of the Lord, how we know we're sons and daughters of the King is we respond with repentance. We receive God's grace. We grow because of the chastening hand of the Lord. His love for us is not a love that pampers. His love for us is one that perfects us. Listen, you, hold on a second. Some of you are listening and you're saying, yeah, but I love my child. Absolutely. Do you think God doesn't love his children? Do you think you're a better dad than God is? Do you think you're a better mom than, than, than God is, if you will? And you just think of that, about that aspect of the relationship. And the answer to that, of course not. And yet God loves us enough to correct us and to chasten us. That's how we know we're children. That's how we know we're sons and daughters of the king. Proverbs 29 verse 1 gives us the opposite side of that. Proverbs says this, He that being reproved, who often is reproved, who hardens his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. I just want to say a quick word here before I get too bogged down. Listen, your best friends are those friends who love you enough to speak truth to you. Not just what you want to hear, but who point you to Scripture and point you to God's Word. Your best friends in this life are those who hold you accountable, those who help you and love you, your spouse when God uses them to do it, even your children at times. And that's always embarrassing, absolutely embarrassing. That's why dads, we're the chief repenters of our home. We're the most visible. We're the ones talking the most and the loudest. And then our youngest one will say, but Daddy, I thought you said da 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 And you realize in the very moment, you're being a complete hypocrite. Listen. These are friends to us, friends, spouses, the body of Christ that lead us to confess our sins and to confess our faults to one another. The problem here is Judas had nothing to repent of. Judas had arrived. Judas was God, and Judas would not worship God. Can you receive correction? The second passage I want us to turn to briefly and pray for me. This is hard. I, this is nothing. This, is, this must be preached, but there's nothing that just says, I can't wait to preach this. I, can, I feel drained even right now. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to a second passage of Scripture in the Word of God in Luke chapter 22, verse 47. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. In this passage, we see his betrayal. So we're walking through just an overview of Judas's life. Here we see his act of betrayal towards the Lord. 
Luke 22. If you'll join me, let's, let's lay the foundation at the beginning. And then we'll jump down after verses 1 through 6. We'll jump down to verse 22. Verse 22, Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which was called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Verse 3 is illuminating for us. This is like a background of understanding what is happening and the current events. We wouldn't know this unless the Holy Spirit told us this. Then Satan entered Judas. This shows us that Judas is not a child. He's not a true disciple. He's not of the Lord's. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray Christ to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Keep reading with me. Then it says, Then in the day of unleavened bread, when the, Passover, uh, when the Passover must be killed, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to go to prepare? And then Jesus gives instruction there for exactly of how they're to go about it and what they are to do. Now look with me, verse 14. When the hour had come, Jesus sat down and his twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With a fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined of God. You could say there in parenthesis. But woe to that, ma that man by whom he is betrayed. Then immediately they began to question among themselves which of them it was that would do this thing. So much here for us. Here we see the divine sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man all at one. Again, the life of Judas is one big paradox of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And this is what Jesus says when he says, Behold, verse 21, The hand of my betrayer is with me, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. This is the determined, determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And yet Judas is of his own volition. Mysteriously, we see the, the intersection of God's sovereignty and the human responsibility aspect of Judas at play here. And we bow before the mystery that is here. And yet Judas is doing that which he was predetermined to do. Yet, when Judas stands before God in judgment, he is guilty of his own accord. And we bow to Scripture here, friends. Don't ask me to go any further than that. I can't. But I follow. I'm, I'm content to let the resonance and Scripture, the tension of Scripture, be what it is as we see it there in the passage. Now, join me verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude... And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them. Roman soldiers following Judas, and he drew near to Jesus, and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, 
Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what he was going to do, what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike him with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And then we see the rest of the account there where Jesus is betrayed. G- Judas's betrayal of Christ. The key thing I want us to draw out of this, again, is the theme of Judas hearing Christ say at the table, one of you will betray me. One of you, your hand is on the table, and you will betray me this very night. And all the disciples begin to say, is it I? Is it me? They internalize the message of Christ. There's self-examination. They were concerned and afraid that it might be them, all except for one, Judas. Now, here's what's interesting, Grace Church, is that no one, listen here, no one suspected Judas as being the betrayer. You say, what's your point? Here's the point. You can be glossy. You can have an image. You can have a a projected understanding of what people think you are. But God knows our hearts. He knows the inner man. He doesn't just see what we do in the body and our acts of words and, and even all those things that are good. But he sees the heart and knows whether our heart truly means it or is regenerated, and whether it flows out of a heart of worship for the king. Something else we see at this betrayal is that Judas kissed the cheek of Christ. You can say like this, he kissed the door of heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many people kissed Jesus on the cheek? Judas did, and he went straight to hell. Judas kissed the door of heaven, and yet he was lost, and he went to hell. What a warning this is for me. What a warning this is for you. What a warning this is for us. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 27. We'll consider his death, the death of Judas. Scripture, again, gives us some key details that are gruesome. These are factual things that took place in Judas's life. Matthew 27, verses 2, beginning there in verse 2. Each one of these gospel accounts give us a little bit more of a different window, give us added insight into what happened. Matthew 27, verse 1, When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away, And delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back his 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. That's your business. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed, and he went out and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. Then they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to then bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field 
as the Lord directed me. One other passage is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and this will be our final passage we look at this morning. As we look at not only his death, but his replacement. Who would replace Judas as one of the original or the twelve disciples? Keeping that number, if you will. In Acts chapter 1, beginning there in verse 16. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Men and brethren, this is what is said beginning of verse 15, actually. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of names was about 120. This is what he said. He said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. Now notice here, this is where that divine sovereignty of God, the superintending providence of God in the affairs of men, the decrees of God are being executed, known unto God are all his works, even from the beginning of the world. God is not discovering or learning, but God is executing in the fullness of time all that has been planned by the Godhead. It's exactly what we see here. And he says, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akel, the Ma, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and, now notice here, let another then take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, these are the qualifications of who would be the replacement. Someone who was a part of the umbrella, if you will, the ministry of John the Baptist and his teaching and preaching, then transferred to the person of Christ when John said, Behold the Lamb of God. It takes away the sins of the world. Then this person also must be a witness of the resurrected Christ. Verse 22. Verse 23 then says, And they proposed two names. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and a man named Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas by the transgression fell that he might go into their own place. Here we see Judas's replacement would become Matthias, a godly man who was there present in the ministry of Christ and would take up his spot to fill the spot of Judas. Well, friends, this morning, as we reflect upon this life, this overview of the life of Judas, let's conclude with just a couple of takeaway points. I want to ask you a question. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? The answer to that question is very important because much like Judas, who was disillusioned because Jesus was not what he thought he was, many are here for the same reason. You're here for the fellowship, but you're not here for the Lordship of Christ. You're here for your ministry. 
you, you've served in the ministry for X amount of years. No pointedness, no agenda. It's just a point of application. You're just not here for Christ. You're here because of the friendship you receive, the affirmation you get. You're here because of the, you like the music. You're someone who loves music, and you love to sing, and you love to sing with people, and you love instruments. That's why you come to church. You're here because you like a head knowledge. You like good theology. You like the rigors of following a subject and a track and, and, and establishing, a, if you will, a, a train of thought and, and, and the academic aspect of the promise, of the, of, the, of the sermon, but yet you just don't know Christ. On and on and on we could go, friends. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here? Some of you are here for less than good motives. Some of you have made gods out of what we receive, out of the benefits of the body of Christ. But here's the problem. You're just not here for Christ. Listen, Christ is why we are here this morning. We're looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. All around the globe, all around East Tennessee this morning are people who go to church because that's what they've always done. And then they go and eat fried chicken because that's what we do. We go to church on Sunday morning. We go drink sweet tea and fried chicken because that's what we do. Some of you are here this morning because that's just what you do. You're just not here for Christ. Listen, I pray that this morning as we examine our hearts, you'll look to Christ. I'm not trying to be ugly. If you're visiting with us this morning, this is a different kind of message, no doubt about it, but we don't apologize for it. We don't preach on people like Judas every Sunday, and you may have planned to come here to be encouraged in a unique way. You may have struggled this week. I just want to encourage you. This is the most important thing I can give to you this morning. Examine your heart to see why you are here. Do you love Christ? Do you, want to, do you desire because of the gospel and because of what Christ has done for you to give him your life? out of worship and sacrifice? Do you love to focus on Christ? Because that's what true worship is. True worship is looking at Christ, focus, focusing upon Christ, and worship, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Are you here because you love Him and His kingdom and you want to give up your, the best years of your life for Christ and the advancement of His kingdom? As we look at Judas's life, it's a sobering warning to us of how close we can be to the truth and yet be lost. Are we able to receive healthy correction and rebuke? Are we recognizing the fact that tares can look just like the wheat, and yet fruit will ultimately become known? So many lessons that we could look at from the life of Judas. We'll have to trust the Holy Spirit to take it and to drive it home. May the Lord help us here this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for your work of grace in our hearts. The scariest thing about Judas and Demas is that no one thought they were D Demas or Judas in the sense of what they would become known as. They were model disciples, model preachers, model workers until they weren't. Until the day they became exposed. Father, thank you for your exposing grace in our life. The kindest thing, Lord, that you do is show us our sin in our as we look into the mirror of God's word, as you give us faith, Lord, to respond in obedience to the truth of Scripture, or as you call us to step out in obedience in the unknown as we think about your calling and serving for Christ, and yet it doesn't make sense, the math doesn't make sense, and there's so many things, but all we know is you've called us. God has called us to do this. 
Father, thank you for the example of Mary that stands in stark contrast to, Ju to Judas. She loved Christ. She showed it. She gave lavishly upon her Savior. She heard the message and the teaching of Jesus and simply believed. Lord, give us that softness, that pliability. May our heart be like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 34. Lord, would you teach us your word? And whatever you show us, we will obey it with all of our heart. Lord, that's our desire. That's our heart's desire. That's our corporate desire here at Grace. We trust you, Lord, to continue to help us and to grow us in the knowledge of Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.